James chapter 3 as we make our way uh, through this book, this short and powerful book written in the mid-40s by James, the brother of the Lord. Come to chapter 3, and I'd like to just read to, uh, to us today the first two verses of chapter 3. So let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy, infallible, inspired word, James chapter 2, or sorry, chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. For indeed, it testifies to us concerning Jesus Christ, your Son and our Lord. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. May the meditation of my heart and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, beloved Lord, James has been reminding us of the fact that faith without works is dead. Just because someone says they have faith doesn't necessarily mean that they truly do have faith, but they must demonstrate that faith by good works, just as Abraham and Rahab did so in the Old Testament. That's what James means when he says that Abraham and Rahab were justified by works. That is, they demonstrated their faith through their actions. Well, now in chapter three, James transitions as he's thinking about faith and works. He transitions to a particular type of work that we do with a particular type of muscle that although quite small, can do many things. Of course, the muscle I'm talking about is the muscle we use boys and girls to speak, that is our tongue. And James will have much to say about our tongue, how much it could do for good, but also how much it could do as far as damage. But before we get into that familiar and well-known passage about the tongue, we see James here, uh, uh, before he talks about the dangers and pitfalls that we must avoid in our speech, we see that James has a particular warning for a particular segment of the church who use their tongues a lot. As a matter of fact, it's their job to talk. He's talking about teachers. Now, some commentators suggest that James has teachers in mind throughout the whole of chapter 3, but clearly that's not the case. Clearly, he's addressing the whole congregation when he says, let not many of you become teachers, and when he says, we all stumble in many ways. And so what he says here applies to everyone. It's not just a sermon delivered to me. You see, boys and girls, when James talks about teachers, he's not talking about the teachers you may have at school or in other parts of life. He's talking about teachers within the church. He's referring to those that we call ministers of the word, people like me whose job it is to teach and preach the word of God. And he says that there ought not to be many teachers among their readers. You see, James is not discouraging those who are properly called and qualified from becoming teachers, since he himself 
is a teacher within the church. He would agree with his Lord that the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few and that the church must always be furnished with good ministers. So if that's the case, then why does he say that there ought not to be many teachers among them? Does James just want job security? Is he just some sort of elitist that says only certain people can become teachers in the church? Well, no, simply James recognizes that not all possess the gifts of being a teacher or minister within the church. And this is simply a reflection of the fact that the Holy Spirit, although there is one spirit and one body, he gives a great diversity of gifts. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 when he says, Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in, this ch- in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? You see, those rhetorical questions that Paul asks, the answer is no. Not everyone's an apostle, not everyone's a prophet, not everyone is a teacher, but only certain people who have been given the gift of being a teacher. And whereas all service in the church flows out of the ministry of the word, as we read in Ephesians chapter 4, Christ, the risen Christ, has showered upon his his church gifts, in the, in the form of apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ. So clearly, all the gifts of the body of Christ, when the body, uh, when the body serves itself, it all flows from that ministry of the word. And yet we must remember that all of those are gifts of grace that the risen Christ has showered upon the church. And so, no, if if somebody's received a particular gift, there's no reason for boasting or no reason for pride in that gift, but it is merely a gift of grace. And no member of the body is dispensable. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, but everyone must use their gift in the service of one another. And yet your service must correspond to your gifts. And James recognizes the fact that great harm could be done upon the church for for people to enter into the office of minister of the word, of teacher of the word, if they do not possess such gifts. Our own form of government says it is highly reproachful to religion and dangerous to the church to entrust the preaching of the gospel to weak and ignorant men. When you hear that, you might say, well, that's not very nice. Shouldn't we accept everyone? Well, no, you see here, we recognize that there's an importance of of recognizing qualifications and particular gifts before we put somebody into that office. Now, why on earth would anyone who is unqualified seek the office of minister or teacher in the church? Why, Why does James even feel necessary to warn his audience that not many of them should become teachers? Well, think about the original audience of James. Many of them have, have fled from their own uh, homes. They're, they're, they're living in abject poverty away from their homeland and, and unable to uh, achieve status in life. And yet, it, what is the one thing that they could do where people would recognize, oh, well, that's an important person. Well, they, they can become a teacher. 
You see, in Jesus' day, the teachers of the law had a lot of prestige and notoriety. Jesus talks about the scribes and the Pharisees. He says they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greeting in the greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. The word rabbi means, oh, great one. That sounds nice. I'd like to be called a rabbi. Oh, great one. Good to see you today, right? There's that notoriety. There's that prestige. And clearly, that's the desire of many people who would want to thrust themselves into the position of teacher in the church, even if they are not qualified. But Jesus warns his followers not to be like that. Don't be like the scribes and the Pharisees who like people uh, touting them. He says, but the greatest among you shall be your servant. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Beloved the Lord, if, if you want notoriety, if you want prestige, if, if you want people to think that you're a great person, becoming a minister of the word is the least of the positions you would want. That's not what you want. But you see, that's the lie that people tell themselves. They see the minister standing up in front talking to people and they think, well, he must be important. He must be a great person. That must be a nice job. You see, that title, minister, it sounds fancy. Put it on a business card, minister of the word. When we forget the fact that minister means servant. If I were to print business cards, which I haven't gotten around to yet, but if I were to print them, I should write servant or slave in the church because ultimately that's what Christ calls his ministers, his teachers of the word to do. He says in Mark chapter 10, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. And you can imagine at this point, Jesus' disciples are thinking, yeah, that's great. Where do we sign up? I want to be like those guys. But Jesus says, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, servants or, or the, the leaders in the church must be servants of all, following after the example of their Lord. And so it's not prestige, it's not notoriety, it's certainly not financial gain that people ought to enter into the ministry of the church. But as a deterrent, we see James remind his readers that he, as well as his fellow teachers, will receive a stricter judgment on the last day. He says, knowing that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, what on earth does James mean here when he talks about teachers being judged with greater strictness? It, it, does, does he have some sort of double standard in mind? Is he saying that ordinary believers will be judged by the law of liberty, as he mentions in chapter 2, but that ministers will be judged according to some, some type of covenant of works? God forbid. There's only one way to salvation for minister and layperson alike. It's by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We're all mis miserable sinners in need of grace. And whereas we all must appear before the judgment seat of Christ, as Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians 5 and Romans 14, 
the minister will be judged specifically in how he served the church of Christ. Again, I think turning to the Apostle Paul to understand this is helpful. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul uses the analogy of a building. He says, according to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. This is the same type of thing James is talking about. This greater strictness in judgment, where the work that they do for the church will be judged. Paul goes on to say, if the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, since we're all saved by grace alone through faith alone but only as through fire. You see, there's many, quote-unquote, successful ministers, according to worldly standards today, who have uh, great cathedrals or sprawling campuses to which thousands, thousands of people flock every Sunday. And yet, when they are judged with greater strictness at the last day, all of that will be burned up. Why? Because as impressive as the buildings were, as impressive as, as the numbers were, it was all wood, hay, and straw. Conversely, there's ministers who faithfully serve their entire lives, who preach and exhibit Christ in him crucified, who will have laid gold, silver, and precious stones on that one foundation of the church, and great will their reward be in heaven even if they do not experience the success, the worldly success today. But the amazing thing as we look around the world today and as we look at the contemporary church is that despite James' warning here that not many people should become teachers because they will receive a stricter judgment, despite that somber warning, which since chills down my spine, the contemporary church is filled with self-proclaimed, self-appointed ministers who all feel like they have something to say and want people to follow after them. They lay their hands on their own head and say, I'm a minister now, everyone listen to me. Beloved in the Lord, Scripture knows nothing of making yourself a minister. Even James's command here, let not, not many of you should become ministers, is a passive verb. It's not even active. The pattern of both Old and New Testament is that those with gifts for special office are recognized, called, and confirmed by others into that office. And in the New Testament, it's with the practice of the laying on of hands. We see this in the book of Acts, for example. In Acts chapter 6, when they appoint the first deacons in the church, they lay hands upon them and pray as they appoint them to the office of deacon. Likewise, the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, when they're set apart as missionaries in, in the church of Antioch, they lay hands on them and send them on their way. Paul references, references this practice many times to his protege, Timothy, as he talks about the gifts that were given to him through the laying on of hands. You see, it's other people 
who make you a teacher in the church, not yourself. An often overlooked passage in Hebrews chapter 5, the author reflecting upon the office of high priest. He says, For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. And notice what he says. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. And so Aaron, Moses' brother, didn't say, hey, Moses, I got a great idea. How about I become high priest? No, he was appointed by God and set apart for the work of the ministry through the ordination of his brother. But not only Aaron didn't presume to take this honor to himself, but the author to the Hebrews goes on to say, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Beloved, if the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, did not presume to take upon himself the office of high priest, but waited until his heavenly father set him apart for that task, who do we think we are as fallible, sinful creatures who spout off at the mouth, who do we think we are to appoint ourselves in positions of authority in the church? And yet we see it every single day. You see, the reason why we shouldn't have self-proclaimed, self-appointed ministers in the church is because, as James says, we're all sinners. We all stumble in many ways, most especially with this thing right here. Most especially in the way in which we speak. See, previously in chapter 2, James gave that hypothetical scenario of somebody keeping the law perfectly and yet stumbling in one point. And there he says, you're guilty of the whole law. But here we see the reality. James, even including himself, says we all stumble. We sin in many ways, all sorts of ways, in thought, word, and in deed. But he says if, if somebody does not stumble in what he says, Notice again there, he's focusing upon speech, and he's thinking primarily of ministers at this point. You see, ministers are held to a higher standard because of their teaching office. I need to put thought into what I'm saying to you right now. I can't just wing it. Why? Because what I say can do tremendous good, but also tremendous harm. As a spokesman for the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be held accountable for every careless word I speak. This is true, not only of false or misleading doctrine, but also of harsh, hateful, or insensitive speech. So many times ministers, when, 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 when sinful speech is coming out of the voice of the mouth of a minister, it does tremendous harm. But why does James single out speech? Well, because as he says, and as he'll elaborate in the coming weeks, it's the hardest thing to control. It's so easy just to open your mouth and let the words fly out without even thinking. Using just a bit of hyperbole, he says that if you can control your tongue, you can control your whole body. You will be a perfect man, perfect, complete, lacking nothing, if you can just control that tongue of yours. That's why he includes, alongside 
visiting widows and orphans, bridling your tongue as part of pure and undefiled religion back in chapter one. And yet if taming your tongue is so difficult, and if teachers are to be judged with greater strictness at the last day, why would anyone wanna become a minister of the gospel, especially if you don't get that worldly prestige and notoriety? Why would anyone wanna do this? Well, I think I can answer for my fellow teachers in the church is that we don't have a choice. We don't have a choice. If Christ gives you a spiritual gift, he expects you to use it. Imagine getting somebody a very thoughtful gift that you know that they would really appreciate and could really use. And yet you go to their house months later and you see that gift unopened, still in its package in the corner of the room. You would think, what gifts? Why didn't you open this? Why aren't you using this good gifts that I gave to you? How would you feel? Well, it's downright insulting, isn't it? But that's precisely what we do when we neglect the gifts that the risen Lord Jesus Christ has showered upon each and every one of us. If God gives you a gift, he expects you to use it. Peter says, as each, as each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. And so the application of the sermon today for all of us is not just don't become a teacher in the church. If that were the case, you'd think, well, that's easy. Got that one. Check that off the, the, the list. No, the application for each and every one of us is that we need to use the gifts that Christ has given to us for the good of others. If he gives you a gift, he expects you to use it, whether it's the gift of teaching or the gift, the gift of helping or the gift, gift of administrating, whatever it is, he expects you to use it. And that's why the Apostle Paul, who received this gift of being an apostle and prophet and teacher in the church, he says, if I preach the gospel, it gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. So I hope your prayer for me as the minister of this church is that I faithfully proclaim the gospel of Christ and I faithfully exhibit Christ in him crucified for you so that I can lay on that foundation gold and silver and precious stones. But my prayer for you is that you would recognize the gifts that you have and that you would put those gifts into service for the building up of the body of Christ. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, none of us would presume to serve in your church apart from your redeeming grace. Apart from the fact that you did not presume upon yourself the office of high priest, but were appointed by God to, to uh, offer up yourself as a, living, as a sacrifice for our sins. And Lord, you call us to use those gifts that you have graciously given to us to serve one another. And so we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us to be faithful in those callings. We pray that you would help us to bridle our tongues so that we would not tear one another down with our speech, but rather build one another up as we speak the truth in love. We ask all this in your name. Amen.